So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today, I am in total geek gal, nerdy SLP mode because we have none other than the Casey Lewis, MS, CCC, SLP, CNT, CLC, NTMTC. 
whoop, <laughs> from Texas. And y'all, she's here and I'm so freaking happy that she's here. Um, and we're going to cover all the things into professional practice for the NICU. But first, Casey, our sweet Aaron asked me to tell you love in AOT. And I don't really understand the message, but she said you'd get it something about a Kappa Delta. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sorority. I do know that that's a sorority. I've learned this much from her. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. So, hi. Thank you for coming to First Bite. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's such an honor. I'm seriously, I really mean that. So, I'm so excited to be here today and learn from you and just, you know, be an SLP nerd together. It's good, you know, to know you're not alone. <laughs> yes. We we joke about calling it the the PFD Island because sometimes it feels like you're just on an island and we talk about engaging in interprofessional education, the act of learning about what other professionals that you collaborate with and learning their roles and responsibilities, because that's the evolution of patient care, right? We can't treat our patients to our highest ability if we don't know what the other team members are doing. But y'all, that same component of interprofessional education, that also is imperative that we engage in that within our own code within our own SLPs, because I don't know anything about what goes on in the NICU. And I don't want to work in the NICU because Bear was in the NICU. I can't not be that mom, right? However, my patients graduate from the NICU. And in Casey, we've talked, Aaron and I have talked about how, you know, when we first started in the world of early intervention, I would get so frustrated, Michelle, 10 years ago, I'd get so frustrated because I'm like, how come they didn't get tested for this in the NICU? And then I started engaging in IPE and learned a lot of times y'all's hands are tied and you can't get those tests run or you don't know, like there's, there's other extenuating factors, right? And that's why we're doing this today. So we can learn more about NICU to help all of us that are either wanting to go into the NICU or all of us that are receiving the patients that have graduated from the NICU. So yes. Does that help set the stage, everybody? <laughs> I think I think so. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Also, what does all of your alphabet soup mean? Okay. So, I mean, I have my C's from ASHA. I'm a certified neonatal therapist. I recently obtained my certified lactation counselor, and then I'm a neonatal touch and massage therapist. It's a certification through Creative Therapy Consultants, which is an awesome organization, and it's for PTs, OTs, SLPs, and RNs can also complete the course. It's just a different credentialing because they're not therapists. It's called Creative Solutions? Creative Therapy Consultants. How in the world did you end up in the NICU? Like, did you go to school knowing that you wanted to be in the NICU? You know, I think so much time has passed now. It's so funny to think back when I was a younger clinician. It's, it's fun to, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do. I didn't really have a plan, to be honest with you. I knew I was interested in the NICU. You'll also hear me say the NICU. I say them interchangeably just because it reminds me that it is an ICU and just I use them interchangeably. So just bear with me. It just keeps me in the moment to be intentional that I do work in an ICU environment. I had an amazing rotation at a 
Baylor site, which is, as many of you may or may not know, it's Baylor's pretty renowned around and respected around the country and around the world for their advancements in pediatric care. And it's served the outpatient, so the NICU grad, and then I got to go into the NICU briefly. And I think that really set the tone for me. As you were saying that you don't want to work in the NICU, I'm not sure if I would want to work in outpatient or in early intervention. I think that I would be okay. I would survive. But I don't know if that's like my God-given gift. It's a very difficult job. So I have a lot of respect for you guys, for sure. I mean, it is hard. And I, I remember thinking, I want to get to the beginning of this. I want to do the best I can to mitigate any need for therapy, any possibility of developmental delay, because I, I see how it impacts a family. And I know you, you, you guys probably see that more than me, right? Because you're living it for a longer amount of time and it's very emotional. Honestly, my, my parents own assisted living facilities. So I grew up after school going to the assisted living facilities and, you know, playing skip bow with my friends there, which were really residents, um, and like <laughs> hanging out with them. So I actually did my, my CF in a skilled nursing facility. I honestly did that because I wanted to jump the gun and it scared me. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like adults scared me more than children. Yes. Even though I would hang out with them, you know, growing up, but not as a friendship, you know, not, not in a medically based way. So I wanted to make sure that I knew I could serve the lifespan. And so I, I worked in the SNF and then I worked in home health. I've worked in the public school system. And then I grew into adult ICU and patient rehab, NICU. And as you probably may or may not know, some of you guys listening while I was working in the NICU, I had a family sister had twins and then an infant lost um, named Max. And I was going through the NICU in the realm of the family lens. And so that's a loaded question that I just answered, but I'm just kind of explaining my path. And that also highlighted my passion for this population just because I lived it, not with my own children. I can't imagine if, you know, if, you know, if that happens to me, I think I'll, I'll I'm, I'm well equipped to navigate it, but I know that it would, I would hope that it would help me be a better clinician because I know that living it from the realm of being an aunt has really helped me take a step back and know that I'm dealing with a human being. And I think that so many of us, and this isn't wrong, by the way, when we're in school, we're just learning how, what's going on. You know, we're, we're learning the knowledge and the literature and the education, but then you have to add the component of being a human being and connecting with people and relating with people. So navigating that really dark time in my life helped me relate to the individuals and families that I have the opportunity to serve. Yes. I promise this is connected. Have you ever read my stroke of insight? I was a very young clinician, so I should probably reread it, but yes. <laughs> okay. So I read my stroke of insight. Y'all, if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend reading that book. I read that book when I was in a medical practicum and it was like, I don't know, one of my offsites at like a inpatient rehab. It was one of those things that was one of those profound moments. It took the cases and made them human. Like it helped me transition then to realizing like the humanity of what we do. We're called to be healers. 
Like that's really truthfully what we do. And it's a continuum. And I just think that's really cool. Okay. All right. Before we get all like lovey-dovey, like let's move on. (laughs) All right. So in my world, I typically don't have a great interprofessional practice team because the nature of early intervention and home health, like we are scattershot and you have to work to create and get the referrals and get the medical records because normally you just get a script and that's kind of it. Like we don't get a lot, right? It's like breadcrumbs and it's hard to build a team, but I'm so jealous that you get to have a team right there, but who, who's normally on your team? Because my team is the parent, the caregiver, the early interventionist, myself, and then we build from there. But normally our team just starts off with like three or four people. But what is what does it look like with your uh, multidisciplinary teams? Sure. So I want to preface it. I work in a level three NICU. Can you explain the difference between the different levels? Basically, in terms of the difference between a level three and a level four in you know layman terms is that we don't do surgeries. We have a sister hospital where our infants may transfer there for a G-tube surgery or a cardiac surgery, more complications associated. We don't have surgeons in our NICU, but we're, I'm in a huge metropolitan area and we all have sister hospitals where the, the infant will have primarily the same physician group. So that is one of the important aspects that the hospital system does try to keep for the parents because at least they'll know some of the physicians and the providers. But in terms of the surgeons, obviously, um, they wouldn't know them until they get there. And then basically a level two NICU is basically your feeder growers. So they, they're they not going to require intubation. There's a certain gestational age that they would just wouldn't be able to serve, like the micropremies. And that's where the level three NICU would come in. We basically can serve any infant in the NICU. Just if they require surgery, we do have to send them out just because we don't have surgeons. But yeah, that's just layman terms for you. That's perfect. In your level three, then, who's your multidisciplinary teams? When I started, I found out, I don't know, it was three months or six months after I got going that I was the eighth therapist in 10 years to go through the NICU that I work in. That was you know, it might be in 11 years or 12 years. That's what was told to me by my leadership. And I felt that for sure. I found it out on my own. And I, you know, in some ways, I'm very thankful that I found out on my own because it gave me a lens, a fresh lens, you know, just to go into it with what I can give it. As you guys probably know, working in the NICU is very difficult. It's a dream for many. Like this is like working with babies is, I mean, it's a dream. I, I get so emotional when I do these, these kind of talks. It's fun. It's kind of interesting. I'm like, Casey, it's okay. <laughs> but it's very hard because there's so many strong personalities. And we also have to remember that a lot of times in these NICUs or NICUs, there's maybe one or two therapists. Um, If you're in a larger children's hospital, maybe you'll have three or four, um, depending on caseload. But what that means is that you're one person. And as you you navigate anything in life and you're advocating alone, essentially, 
it's very isolating. So when I first started, I mean, the organization itself might have been thinking that we were collaborating on paper, but theoretically we, we weren't, (laughs) it wasn't the best collaboration. So I remember when I first started that first year or so, but it was early on in my NICU days, I asked the head neonatologist and the head neonatal nurse practitioner, may I please have a meeting with you? (laughs) And I wanted to explain my role and what I'm there and what they expect of me because there have been so much advocacy in our field to get therapists in the NICU that it is, I'm going to speak for the state of Texas. I think this is nationwide, but It is now a regulation that if you are going to be a level three NICU or above, that you need to have someone in there that specializes in feeding, whether that's a speech language pathologist, an occupational therapist, so on. So what that means is that we're getting into the NICUs, we're getting into the NICU paper, but we might not be able to collaborate well because it's the beginning stages of change, right? Wait, I had no idea that that was a new regulation. Like, honestly, I just... It might be 2017. When I say new, I would say within the past five years. What that means is that there's all these hospitals are like, well, we've got to get a speech pathologist. We've got to get someone in there that specializes in feeding, you know, because we're not going to get our designation if we don't have that. But again, that's not just checking that off on paper. There's what we, we have to have a process for that. So that is also one of the reasons why it has been very difficult for therapists to create programs to advocate for change, to build relationships. But when I first started, I, I asked to be a part of daily rounds and I, I wanted to be there because what would happen is I would communicate to the bedside nurse who may or may not have wanted to hear my recommendations. Um, (laughs) So I think that's the Nikki for you. You have to learn how to be PC. And I would be honest with you, oftentimes in my beginning days, they weren't followed because these nurses knew I was a new NICU clinician. They knew like, what is this girl now? You know, like she's got to prove herself. And that's the reality of the situation. I did have to prove myself and it's very hard. So I said, I want to be part of daily rounds because that's part of the family centered care model where the provider or the, when I say provider, that means a medical or director or the, or the physician or the neonatal nurse practitioner, because they both have the ability to write orders. Obviously the physician has I guess, more power than the neonatal nurse practitioner, but they both are providers. They both can write orders. They both can, you know, deem the plan of care. And by doing so, I would say if there's anything I needed to say for that baby, when we rounded on them, I I would speak up and say that, or we would have a, a, a conversation. And if it was a bit more heated, maybe we would take that to the side. And in terms of heated, I mean like a disagreement. <laughs> wait, wait. On that note, everybody out there, I highly recommend you pick up the book Crucial Conversations because that helped me learn how to have those heated conversations without letting my upbringing come through my mouth. So, yes. Like, again, like looking back on my growth is just like a human being. It's like being in the NICU has taught me so much, you know, just how to talk to people too when you have a disagreement. I mean, that's, um, that's me being honest. But I, you know, I would advocate for them then. And 
then also the respiratory therapist was there. So there, it really helped us grow as a NICU in the sense that, okay, well, we're actually showing each other what our roles are rather than what they might say on paper. So I'll go over some of the individuals that may or may not be present for daily rounds, but these are typically the ones that are essentially there that have to be there would be the provider, whether that's the doctor or the neonatal nurse practitioner. Typically it's both because the doctor wants to be there. The therapist, so whoever's in on your therapy team. And uh, again, that can look different across all NICUs across the country. You can have all three disciplines, meaning speech, OT, PT, maybe just speech. The bedside nurse, the charge nurse is going to be there. Ideally, obviously the baby's going to be there, uh, but ideally mom and dad are going to be there. (laughs) Ideally mom or dad or the caregiver, if that's grandmother or whoever that is for the baby, ideally they're going to be there. We do our best to have a set time for rounds, but how our NICU works is we round when the provider can round. And typically that's between 10 a.m. and noon. And then the social worker and the dietitian in my NICU are not there typically for daily rounds. They're there for our weekly rounds. We have weekly discharge rounds. And that is where... Our ECI representative, early childhood intervention, used to come prior to COVID. And so I really fought hard to get them involved in our NICU process and because the discharge planning was very difficult. I would suggest to the parents or the medical team, hey, this is what would look great for home. You know, we're always training for home. Like in my head as a therapist, I'm always training for home. I'm always trying to help mom and dad have a relationship with their baby, number one. So because they are the, the, the number one advocate for their infant, they are the one that goes home with the baby. I don't, as much as I love all of the babies that I get to serve. But I would say, you know, these are good things to do for home. And then... Connect, you can connect with a speech pathologist or an occupational therapist or a physical therapist. And then you're just like, well, what does that look like? That doesn't always mean that they're going to even be followed up with, because as we know, you know, the pediatricians are expert in, you know, the, the care of the child, the general care, but not the pinpoint care in terms of development. And I don't, I don't mean that disrespectfully. It just kind of is what it is. So a lot of these children might get missed. Okay. So folks, On our side, because I know most of you listening are not NICU therapists, what she just said, the pediatrician is the generalist. They need to know a little about a lot so that they can be the gatekeepers to the specialist, but they've got to be able and willing to make referrals. Sorry, huge soapbox that we struggle with on the daily basis for so many of our patients, but yes, continue. So I was able to be a part of our, our hospital, not myself was able to be part of a pilot program that the state of Texas was initiating that where the ECI representative would come to the weekly rounds. I would talk to them about who is upcoming to discharge. This is what we're working on. This is what this looks like. And they would then connect with their treating therapist to say, this baby's on his or her way. This is what's going on. This is painting the picture for them. And I actually took this off the social worker's plate because it was on the social worker to get the documentation signed that they could, the ECI representative could connect with them. So I, myself and my colleague, who is a physical therapist, 
can do this together. She primarily helps me with it now, but in the first two years or so, I would get the paper and go over it with mom and dad and say, are you okay with this? Yes or no. And so just to get that process facilitated because the social worker has a lot on their plate. And typically some of these social workers aren't exclusively to the NICU, so they can cover the whole hospital and it's just a lot for them. So I wanted to make sure that that was getting taken care of. Do you realize the beautiful impact that that has for continuity of care? Yes. I mean, I do because I only did a rotation in grad school, right? For the NICU grad. And it was, I mean, I was like, I have to change something like this has to change. I know I'm just one person, but I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that I'm helping this process in some way. (laughs) But like, that's profound. If that could be replicated across the nation, that would fix a huge component within the early intervention system itself. I mean, these babies that get discharged here in South Carolina, that's not an automatic referral over to our state early intervention systems called BabyNet. That's not an automatic referral. And so these kids get discharged. They may get home health as an extension from the hospital if the hospital has one, a home health therapist that can treat NICU grads, and two, openings and availability. Otherwise, they just get sent home and and there's not a guarantee and carryover. That's profound. There are concerns in that process, just like you were saying, because it is a state-run program. All of these programs across the country are state-run. So yes, I can create a referral. And so how the process works now, now when this is posted, it might be changed for the state of Texas, but the evaluation is covered. And if they need services, then if the infant is receiving Medicaid or they are on, they have a certain diagnosis, like they were a certain weight at birth, that's like an automatic criteria to get them in the system and covered. But if it's like they're a late preterm infant, they're having trouble with eating, that doesn't always mean that it's going to be fully covered. So that is part of the issue is that it can be expensive for these families on top of their incredible NICU bill. And so that has been something that I've had to navigate because then the families are like, I just, we can't afford this. We can't do this. And That's, I mean, that's life, right? It's part of the healthcare system, but that has been difficult because I will educate them on the benefits of this. And then they're like, why did you tell me this? I can't even do it. But I know at least I'm getting it in their heads. They, I know at least I'm advocating for them to have these conversations with the uh, pediatrician or putting it in their minds to call someone else if they don't want to use ECI, that that is fine. I mean, putting it in their head that early intervention is key and that is the best way to uh, mitigate any effects of the NICU and facilitate best development. So, yes. Big picture, I'm just kind of wondering with the R code for pediatric feeding disorder coming out in October, I'm kind of wondering if we'll be able to use that as an automatic qualifier for early intervention. Because there's certain automatic qualifiers for state agencies, uh, genetic conditions, intraventricular hemorrhages, hearing loss, like those are automatic qualifiers, right? But within South Carolina, we had to advocate to get oropharyngeal dysphagia added. So we were able to get that added, but 
at this moment, we don't have the R code, like we don't have an ICD-10 code for PFD, but I'm hoping that once we get that, we'll be able to turn around and say, okay, here's the statistics, here's the research, here's the diagnosis. Now make this an automatic qualifier because that I think will help because there's power in being able to utilize the correct code. The roles and responsibilities of the team and how can those processes get improved? And we got to go to discharge, but like you got in, you are working with your, the ECI personnel. What about the other team members? And you touched on something that I know is a trigger for a lot of folks, having an OT in the NICU. I love collaborating with my OTs. How does that work? Because I know some folks get upset about scope of practice encroachment, but that's in their scope. So what does that role look like on the team? We don't have an OT. What? You don't have an OT? No, we don't have an OT because the NICU that I work in is a community hospital. It's not a large children's hospital. So obviously we would benefit from their assistance, right? Like in their expertise. I would never, ever say otherwise. But in terms of staffing, in terms of the hospital leaders and decision makers that I'm not in that role. I serve those infants in my scope of practice. And then we have a physical therapist that, you know, primarily is focusing on head shaping and making sure any of those effects are are mitigated and, you know, mobility as well. But yeah, that's why we don't have an OT. Remember, because I, in the beginning, I, that I said that a hospital says that we have, not the hospital, but typically the state or whoever does the leveling says you have to have someone that specializes in feeding. And so that's why we wouldn't have both. But in a larger NICU where the staffing is larger needs, that's where maybe an OT or another SOP or someone would come in to meet that need. In Florence, where I work now at over at the university, the local NICU, and it's not that big of a hospital, only has OT and they have no speech. And they're trying to get speech in in conjunction with the OT because the OT is like, I know what I know, but I don't know what I don't know. And we really want speech to come in. And they're they're having to do the advocating to try to add in another team person and blah, 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 blah. I think where the complication arises is that, you know, what does the dysphagia background or uh, look like in their programs? And then what is their continuing education look like in terms of dysphagia? Whoever it is, if it's speech or OT, because we might have a speech pathologist that might not know a ton about dysphagia, but hopefully if that individual is working in the NICU, obviously they've done a ton of continuing education to do that or you know, that's a safety concern for whoever it is, if we're speaking for OT. Yes. And that's what the OT was saying. She was like, I know what I know. She was like, but esophageal dysphagia, you know, she was like, when, when they start aspirating, she was like, that's not my wheelhouse. And I thought that was fantastic. Do you see that many clavicular breaks, like clavicle breaking during delivery? Because my niece she got stuck and she was in the NICU because she um, broke her clavicle and, you know, they were worried about like, I guess it popping vital organs because it was like a really, like it was a traumatic delivery, like blah, but she's fine now. But I just wonder, is that common? Do you see a lot of that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we do see it. And that's where the physical therapist would be first in line in terms of navigating 
that and offering treatment recommendations. And typically, um, and I don't want to overstep my physical therapy or occupational therapy colleagues, but typically it's really trying to hold the that side of the body down and making sure we're not moving it and just navigating maybe the left side or the right side wherever one is not injured. But that's kind of what the care looks like and from my knowledge, but yes, it does happen, especially if the infant is larger. Oh yeah. Sandy was a beast, dude. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's, she's a beast. She's a powerhouse. God, she's a great kid. But um, yeah, my, my brother-in-law is like well over six feet tall. Wow. <laughs> so, well, there you yeah. go. <laughs> uh, I mean, I had preemies and my sister had really giant babies. <laughs> so, like, uh, Bear was 35 weeks and he was six pounds, 12 ounces at 35 weeks. So your child's name is Bear? No. <laughs> um, his real name is Theodore Alexander. No, the reason I asked this is because my sister who had a baby, she, you know, she lost, she lost her baby. Their planned nickname for him was Bear. Bear, yes. He also goes by Boo Bear, but Bear. Okay. Um, I just think that was an interesting connection. <laughs> Tell her bears have fierce little spirits always. Can we switch over to discharge planning? Because I'm so curious as to like, this is where I think we have so much room for improvement and continuity of care between my world and your world. And I know it's the same world, but like, let's be honest, it feels very different sometimes. What are y'all doing and how can we across the country do better? Okay, so first of all, before we go into that, I I, I think we all need to be on a mutual understanding that... The AAP says that a baby can discharge, state of Texas, uh, we can discharge a baby as early as 35 weeks. Okay, so that means that baby is a preemie. And the so we might not get to see that baby. We might see the baby for a day. So that is an infant that is likely going to be missed. And though that's a late preterm infant, that's us we know so well that the, it's great to get the baby home, but they're the most often to fall through the cracks. They're the most hospitalized because they do fall through the cracks and we don't get to see them. So I think it's just, number one, having that understanding that if that infant wasn't seen by a therapist, there's a reason for that. Typically, they were just you know sent home. The goal is to always get them home, but sometimes it can feel like they're being pushed out the door. But mommy and daddy want them home, and I understand that. My role is complex in the NICU. I in, I don't just specialize in feeding. I always say my role as a neonatal therapist, a certified neonatal therapist, is to bridge the gap between the expected environment of the womb to the unexpected environment of the NICU first. So my first role is to help the parents get to know their baby, be able to learn how to touch their baby, be able you know, learn how to talk to their baby, and be a fervent advocate for their infant. That that looks like teaching them how to do a diaper change, teaching them how to do a handhold, teaching them how to complete skin to skin and advocating for them doing skin to skin and not just holding their baby with, you know, swaddled. So that is where my neonatal therapy background comes in, because I always believe that those examples are the foundation for oral feeding because it's setting the, 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 the developmental expectations for the baby to want to be able to engage in an activity like eating in a nurturing way. 
So, and then after that, I'm working on helping baby and mom um, establish non-nutritive sucking, which is sucking on a previously pumped breast or with a pacifier. And I know some of us know this, but I always, always feel like I need to advocate for it. But the ability to suck on a pacifier is not a predictor of how well a baby may consume by breast or bottle. I probably still hear that every day. It's always teaching and having the conversation without feeling like you're shouting at someone. You're Mm -hmm. just got to talk about it. And so after that, I might help the infant explore taste by mouth. And after that, I'm helping, you know, we try to do some kind of protected window where mom is able to just breastfeed or attempt to breastfeed. And that's up to mom. We're never saying this is what we're doing. We say, do you want to do this? And it's also if mom's on certain medications or has, you know, is engaging in certain drugs and we're not able to Illicit activities. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. We're not able to breastfeed. Yeah. But then we will help establish a feeding plan by the bottle. Do y'all have a milk bank? For like donor's milk. Mm-hmm. Y'all, I've had patients where the mothers have survived breast cancers and they have had double mastectomies and they want to breastfeed, but they can't. And they're going through, we're home now. I just, and they, they have postpartum anxiety, depression, guilt, survivor's guilt. They all of all of these factors. And that's one consideration that those of us in the home health outpatient world, we don't always think of the opportunity for donor's milk. I will say that every hospital has their own procedures or guidelines on Mm -hmm. how long an infant may or may not receive donor milk because it is an expense for the hospital. I don't know if I really understood that in the beginning. It is expensive for the hospital to purchase But typically how it works right now is that if a mom is trying to breastfeed and trying to pump, she's doing those things, but maybe her supply is not all the way sufficient, then we'll supplement with donor milk and support that until, you know, a few days before discharge if mom isn't planning to keep pumping because then baby needs to transition to formula. But if mom isn't pumping, maybe mom is unfortunately not present, then the providers typically utilize donor milk till about 34 to 35 weeks in the hospital, that system that I work in. And then their transition to formula. Mm-hmm. I'm very finicky about the formulas because of the kids that I treat. And so y'all, not all formulas are created equal. Just remember long-term planning, kids should not have eczema. And those are red flags for milk protein allergy and soy allergy and blah, blah, blah. We've talked about that at nauseum, but okay. Yes. You also said something earlier that I love, and we're going to have to work it into a quote with a picture of your fabulous self, that you said you're always planning for the discharge. Well, in my head, I am, you know. You've talked about the moms. Do you do you guys have a lot of, and then we glossed around the illicit situations. Do y'all get a lot of foster care situations through the NICU? How does that work? Yeah, we, we do. It ebbs and flows, but yeah, it comes up. We have some right now, and... That depends on your state organization, how they navigate that. And, you know, always the goal is to get the infant back with the mom or the dad. I mean, I hope that's the goal of the work, every organization and supporting the mom and dad to 
get healthy and on the right track to be able to care for their baby. But to be able to have, you know, the, the foster situation or even adopting, it's really complex and very difficult <laughs> for these families that are wanting to adopt. And even in these situations make it even more complicated because one being that maybe mom or dad or mom, whoever the caregiver is, does is able to get help and maybe they want to care for their baby. And that's where it gets complicated because maybe that foster family or that family that was planning to adopt the baby already formed a relationship. And that's where it gets so muddy because it's like, it's just sad because then you want to support the mom or you want to support the other family, but it does happen. And I will say, I don't see it often. I think I see it a few times a year. I don't want for it to get that complicated where that has to happen, but I know it's there for a reason and that these individuals that decide to help these babies are, I mean, they're like gems in the world. So I have so much respect for them as well. But y'all, when we were talking earlier about the humanity of what we do, that's, that's a piece. That's my goodness. That is definitely not covered in grad school when we're trying to talk about the big nine. They're outliers in cases, just like palliative and hospice care for peds. We don't like talking about it. They're outliers, but they're there and you got to be prepped and ready for how to navigate those situations. I've had one mama that that little baby got neck in the NICU. They used um, Santham gum thickener and he was a preemie and he got necrotizing enterocolitis. And so I picked him up when he was three years old and he had short gut syndrome and CP and he was being raised by a medically fragile foster mom who was almost 80. And she was in probably better shape than I was because she could lift him and swing him around. And I was like, he was a big dude. And oh my stars, that woman is an angel. Okay. So discharging out in relationship to the next level of care, the outpatient folks, how's that for you with talking with the next SLP? What does that look like? That is a huge gap. (laughs) Yes, it is. (sighs) I mean, like I feel frustrated just like right now about it because like it's so it's so frustrating because just as much as you guys don't know maybe who I am or even getting my notes, I don't know who you guys are. Before COVID happened, I did have a great relationship with that ECI representative that we discussed previously. And then we would do phone calls And to be honest, there's just like a gap in terms of navigating life after COVID and what that process is going to look like now. It seems like we're taking steps back in terms of my relationships that I formed in terms of of discharge planning. Like it's like lost time. And I don't know, like I've got to do something about that. I know that I don't really know what's going on in the ECI world. When I say ECI, that's my state organization, like discharging from NICU. I don't know what's going on right now in that world. And it's a huge issue because I'm always wondering what is going on with these infants. Like I can be with these babies for a hundred days. Right. And that's a long time. And so they become part of my life essentially (laughs) just as much as they become part of you guys. Cause I know you serve them for quite, I mean, even longer than that at times. Years. Sometimes it's years. Yeah. So that's a huge issue there's a breakdown right now in my world. And I would assume across the country with that. And I, I'll be honest with you. I'm concerned. I'm concerned about that. It's like, I'm just taking, you know, 10 years back and I don't know what to do about that. I hope it get 
improved. And I think part of the issue is that we're the ECI representative currently is not doesn't come to our live meetings anymore because of the decrease in people that can come to the hospital. So I think that, you know, can restart. I don't get to make that decision, but that it's maybe on their end. It's like, well, what's going on here? Like, can I come back? Like, I don't know. It's a problem. So I don't know if you have suggestions, but we've, I've got to do better with that because it's, it, it concerns me deep. I can only speak for our state. Every state does it different. When the pandemic broke, we were not doing teletherapy in South Carolina for OTPT or speech. If you were doing teletherapy, you were you had a license in a different state and there was blah, 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 but like it was not done. And that was because it wasn't reimbursed. And so pandemic broke. And then last April, May, maybe a year ago, there was definitely almost an eight-week lag time where services could not be rendered. And they authorized it, but they only gave us the CPT codes for speech for treat. We couldn't even do evals. They did not give us the CPT codes for dysphagia. They would not authorize it. And eventually that got rectified. Well, over that timeline, it got compounded for us in the outpatient home health world where there were some updates to the CMS manual, um, the Medicaid manual. They put the CPT code for evaluation and treatment of swallowing disorders on the midwife CMS manual. They added our AAC codes to, it was either occupational therapy or physical therapy. <laughs> and like, so now you've got this huge thing in the Pete's world for us where services are finally being rendered, but nobody's getting paid and has not been paid for those services for months because somebody somewhere simply put the code in the computer system wrong. And so now folks aren't wanting to pick up patients because they haven't been paid because they have to provide for their families, which I get. I don't understand why this hasn't been addressed because it's literally just copy paste, dude. Like give me the computer program. I will copy paste or put the code in like I can. But at the same time, those are patients that are falling through the cracks. They're not getting services rendered to them because Private practitioners don't want to pick those patients up because they have to provide for their families. And oh, by the way, we're still kind of in the pandemic, right? So that's a huge point of system breakdown. Also, in our state, and I can only speak to our state, and I've lived in Virginia, so I can speak to my experiences there. It's somewhat better in Virginia. The pediatricians will refer therapy and they don't always refer to the state early intervention system. And so I like, I mean, I've gotten referrals from a pediatrician for like NICU grads and they're like, Hey, Michelle, can you pick this kid up? Work him in. I'm like, perfect. But what they don't realize is that concurrently the early interventionist, which is like a service coordinator, they're calling their friends and getting a speech therapist as well for the NICU grad, but it may not be one that is as familiar with some of the complexities in cases. And then families are getting mixed signals because now you got two SLPs and 
they don't know which one they're supposed to keep or go through. So there's those internal dynamics. But again, that's the patient's livelihood, right? So there's all of those interesting private practice home health components. That and we don't get medical records. Casey, I've literally gotten prescriptions that say speech therapy, eval, and treat with the cause listed as aphasia because the pediatrician wrote aphasia instead of dysphagia. Well, I don't even know what to say about that. Which is <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, the first time I got it, it was so funny. I didn't really know what to do with it. And then like, but I mean, like it's, it happens a lot, but then they send no medical records. Like, or if I get a medical record, it's old, but I may not get the list of current medications. Like, I mean, I've had so many little ones that have Down syndrome that have been on Lasix because of the severity of the PDA. And they're just trying to put weight on them so that they can survive the surgery. But if you're on Lasix, like we're now in congestive heart failure concerns. And don't you think that's going to change my plan of care? Because now I'm worried about getting calories in versus like progressing a diet and introducing like period, like that changes my trajectory for a plan of care. My dad would say, if you're going to fuss about a situation, then with your next breath, how are you going to work to resolve it? And that's how I was raised and probably why I'm such a vocal person. Y'all, you have to advocate. Yes, you have to advocate for the individual patient, but when there are systemic breakdowns, like what we've talked about, especially with respect to discharge planning, then that's why you get engaged with your state association because your state association drives legislation and policies in state. ASHA does not. They don't have state level lobbyists. They have national level lobbyists. And these are state issues. So you have to reach out. My dear friend, Adrian was our VP of governmental affairs. Now she's the president elect elect and the new VP of governmental affairs. They're having meetings after meetings to get this stuff resolved. Like they're working on it, but they have to be told that there's a problem. They can't have the meetings if they don't know. And typically your state association board may not have individuals that work in the NICU or work in early intervention. Predominantly, it's been a lot of school-based SLPs. So that's where those of us in the medical world have to reach out because, I mean, we pay like $3,000 a month or something like that to have a lobbyist that can do these things and drive these changes. But they got to know about the problems first. We've gotten things changed. We've had codes added. We've, but yeah, advocacy. Huzzah. What else? (laughs) That's a huge trigger for me. (laughs) I don't know. I think the other issue is that our colleagues on the multidisciplinary team, I think there's a breakdown in them understanding why therapy is in the NICU um, and then why it's important because I think we all have our own lens and as humans, we see things the way we see them and like say the role of the RN, you know, they help these babies survive. They have a skill set I do not have. I don't know how to do many of the things they do, right? It's not my scope of practice. I didn't go to school for it. And I don't think it's my, my gifts, but maybe getting baby out of the NICU success, right? They, they've done their job. It's success. And I'm sure many of them also are thinking about what's going on with that baby, right? I'm not trying to make a blanket statement with what maybe the nurses are thinking, but it's hard being a therapist in the NICU because you know 
that these babies may not receive services if they may be services for months and years. And I think there's, you know, I'm going through a situation now where this is a, a different complication, but it's just to, you know, speak to it that in some ways an infant may be receiving a G-tube is better than have baby continue to eat by mouth, continue to eat by mouth. And, and that, I'll be honest with you, that conversation is very difficult with the providers at times and also getting the parents to understand that, that it is better because it is very terrifying for them. But I know that could be a whole nother episode. I just wanted to bring up that as part of the issue, why some change is so slow is because the power, the providers, right? They're not always understanding why therapy is needed and why these babies need our help. Maybe they're just checking off the list, like the baby's getting discharged, baby, it's going home, right? They did their job, but it's them having the knowledge of what our our role is and specifically the knowledge of swallowing. Honestly, I don't believe they get much training in that and, you know, they shouldn't. That's our scope of practice, but it's just respecting each other's specialties. That's another big issue. One of my girlfriends is a pediatrician and she's brilliant. She went to Harvard and she was like, yeah, I didn't learn any of this stuff. I got like a night on child development for like language. And that was kind of it. And I was like, that's horrifying. She's like, yeah, yeah, it is. (laughs) So there's that little bit of honesty. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So immediate fixes, folks. When you have a kid that you know came from the NICU, and I'll be honest, like folks that work in home health and outpatient, reaching out and asking questions to the NICU SLP, it's intimidating. There has been one particular SLP that I'm just not a fan of, but we're just very different individuals and that's okay. And we just agree to work professionally for the best of the patient, but just different personality traits, right? But everybody else that I've met when I've overcome my fear of asking questions and sounding like an idiot has been absolutely grace and kindness. And just, it has been beautiful conversations for that patient. But it is intimidating on our part to reach out to y'all because y'all know so much. And it's like, ah, they're going to think I'm an idiot for asking this. And what is a brewery? And what is work of breathing? And blah, blah, blah. I mean, but that's why we engage in interprofessional education. We can do hard things and we can have those conversations. And so y'all pick up the phone and call. I'll be honest with you. I only talked to the ECI representative. I don't have never gotten a phone call from a home health or... Um, therapist. Oh, that's, that's really scary. Yeah. I just encourage you guys, if you are in that position, I think I would hope the NICU therapist would be like, so like, you know, floored that you called, like, let's talk. I'm so glad you're calling me because I don't know who to contact. At least maybe on your end, you could figure out the hospital that baby was in and then ask for the therapist. Maybe that's, it sounds easier to me. I don't know, but I just don't even know who to call. So that's part of the issue. Why, why that there's that communication breakdown, but I encourage you guys to do that because I would be like, let's go, you know, let's go get coffee. Let's do something <laughs> together. Be my new best friend. Let's have margaritas and nachos. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Uh, so there it is, folks. Make the call. I am in awe. Thank you so much for coming. If folks want to learn more from you and maybe volunteer so that we can do process improvements, how can they reach you? What can they do? Take us through that. I would say I'm most accessible on my Instagram platform, which is at the Casey Lewis. And that's typically where I try to answer a lot of questions. I do get a lot of messages and I I do read them and I do hear you guys and I want you to feel free to reach out to me. I also try to do Q&As on my Instagram page. So I try to respond more properly to that. And then in terms of volunteering, many of you guys may or may not know, but I am the Director of Public Relations for Dysphagia Outreach Project. So what that means is I serve on the board and my role is to get the word out basically about Dysphagia Outreach Project and explain our mission, which is essentially to improve the lives of those living with dysphagia. And we have a dysphagia food bank as well, which means that we work to provide supplies and thickener. You know, it's not just a thickening food bank. I want to be very clear about that. It is supplies for a baby or an adult (laughs) across the lifespan that someone might need. And so I would encourage you guys to access that platform. We currently have had an influx of volunteers. So we appreciate that. We are working on, you know, connecting with other organizations across the country to expand our mission and get the word out there. Because also the people that need to know about us are the families. We need the clinicians to know about us, the providers, the doctors, that's a big one to know about us, social workers, but honestly, the families need to know that we're a resource. June is Dysphagia Awareness Month, so you guys will be hearing more from us, our organization, getting our word out there and hoping that, you know, those individuals that I mentioned, not just speech pathologists or occupational therapists or even physical therapists, our goal is to have a more broad-based spread of our message. And I'll let you kind of speak to that, Michelle. Yes. So we can officially let the cat out the bag and I'm so excited. Sarah with at short and sweet speech reached out and was like, Hey, you want to volunteer with dysphagia outreach project? I was like, word, cool. I'm game. Little drowning, trying to finish the book. Let me come up for air and then let's partner. And we did. And so in the month of June, we will be releasing a 10 part mini series with dysphagia outreach project all about dysphagia assessment, treatment, guidelines, best practice, volunteer opportunities across the ages. And I have the honor of interviewing Casey again and numerous just incredible, brilliant colleagues in the field of dysphagia. And it is sponsored by Speech Therapy PD and it is every episode will be eligible for ASHA Continuing Ed. But we are really excited to be putting good in the world because at the end of the day, knowledge needs to be shared and we all are on the same island. It's all one big, beautiful continuum. So I'm really excited. So stay tuned. We'll have um, a little bit more info to come, but be sure to check out the Dysphagia Outreach Project podcast mini series. So yay! Yay! (laughs) Thank you so much! Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? 
The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.